Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. Um, two quick show notes. I want to give you our call-in number, should you be listening and want to uh, call in and speak with our guests this afternoon. That number is 888-329-329. 3306. That's 888-329-3306. And I always want to give out our website as well, so you can go and check out some of our previous shows. You can find all of um, all of our programming at womentowatch.net, and that's women, the number two, watch.net. By the way, my name is Sue Rocco. <laughs> Sometimes I forget to introduce myself. And I'm thrilled to have a woman with me in the studio this afternoon. She's a local uh, woman in the Philadelphia area. And her name is Rabbi Dale Friedman. Rabbi Friedman is a pioneer in the development of a Jewish spiritual vision for aging, spiritual care, and healing. And she was the founding director of Hidur, which is the Center for Aging and Judaism. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sue. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as I mentioned to you be, before we even came on the air, I am so fascinated with the topic um, of aging, and perhaps that's because I'm now halfway through. <laughs> as I say to my, my children all the time, um, you know, midlife to me really is the beginning of the second half of life. And I think when you look at it that way, it, it kind of turns the whole perspective around. So I'm excited to talk to you. I have lots of, lots of good questions. Um, just to give the audience a sense of who you are and where you came from, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your years growing up in the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado. Sure, I'd love to. So I am a third-generation native Coloradan, which in Colorado entitles you to be considered a pioneer. Um, 
And I grew up in Colorado in a Reformed Jewish household. Uh, my father was in public life as a state representative and talk radio host. Very we nice. About that earlier. Yeah, small And world. my mom started out as a homemaker and volunteer in the community and then went back to college and became a professional Jewish educator over the course of my childhood, really tracing the feminist movement as it was emerging in yes. her own personal life. Yes. So different from, from what we're doing today, I think. What, what Actually, what is your take on that? You know, the difference, there's a lot of... Um, Work going on today advocating for women as leaders. Um, there are all kinds of women's networking groups, and there are wonderful books. And uh, but it's it's a whole different um, take on feminism, I guess the word feminism, than when our mothers were growing up. How do you see the difference? Well, my mom, who's an incredibly bright and talented woman, went to college for a year and a half and got her MRS degree. And then she transferred to live at the college where my dad was going to school, which was a men's college at the time, Wesleyan, where she was not allowed to take credit classes. She could take classes, but she was not allowed to get credit for them. That's yeah, which amazing. is astonishing. 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 Yes. And it yeah. wasn't until many years later that she fulfilled her promise to her father from the time that she would finish her college education and she went on to get a master's degree. But she wasn't raised with the expectation that one could, in fact, have a family, have a career, fulfill oneself, and fulfill one's obligations to others. I think that was a very hard thing to figure out. She says she read Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, and it changed her life. Wow. What what a great influence for you to have, um, you know, as a young girl, to have your mom um, as an example and, and going back to college. Um, at a time when it really wasn't that common. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things I read about you, which I think is so interesting and a huge part of your story, is that at a very young age, you had this sense that you wanted to grow up and become a rabbi. So as a young girl, you would go to temple and you would listen to the rabbi speak. And while perhaps other young girls were in the temple thinking about what they could be doing outside at home with their girlfriends, um, you, you, you know, were really um, in tuned and involved. Tell me about that and, and how you believe that kind of came to be. There's a certain piece of this that is mystery. I can't tell you why, as a little kid, I would sit there in the pews and feel something so deep in me touched by the prayers and by the setting of, of worshiping together as a community. Um, and I, I don't think, honestly, that my parents had that kind of um, connection. They had a communal connection and they had a cultural connection, but I was just excited by being there and I loved my rabbi who was handsome and charming and talented oh, well, that helps. and performed magic <laughs> tricks and had a great voice so that oh, certainly helped right he but, seemed real to you yeah but I would sit there and think gee you know I want to do what he's doing yeah yeah and I didn't understand what that meant exactly at the time right but I thought but you were intrigued. This is this is what I want. Yeah. And listen, uh, Dr. Dupree has has just joined oh, us. Wonderful. So I wa- yeah, I want um, to hey. take a second to say hello and welcome to the are, show, Beth. 
Unfortunately, our caller line isn't working. That's okay. Yep. Well, we've got you. 888 number. I know. I finally got through. I, you know what? I'm, I'm so used to, to being at the studio or being at the studio at Holy Redeemer, and I am seeing a consult uh, right after the show, so I promised my office manager since Rabbi was going to be in-house, I could use the line. But... Guess what, Sue? I didn't even have the number, but it's all good because here I am. You're Life here. Is good. You're here. And I'm Rabbi here. Freeman is thrilled to, to meet you. Say hello. So it's glad so to, nice meet to meet you, Dr. You. Dupree. It's so nice to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a fabulous idea for a program. Oh, Sue Rocco, she is such an awesome woman. You know, I I just have to, like, give her a shout-out because she was interviewing a panel of women on Friday. and. and did a phenomenal thing. I couldn't get there because I had office hours, but I am sure she did an amazing job because she has kind of changed the way that women of substance are viewed um, in the media because she's making sure that people's stories get heard, which I think kudos to Sue Rocco, my, uh, my friend and, and my, uh, my Monday afternoon buddy now. So um, it's all good. Thank, well, of course, thank you to you, my biggest fan. Who, who yeah. helps bring me the show every week. And, of course, Holy Redeemer Health System, I always, always want to say thank you to them because they, too, see, you know, what we're trying to do here every week. Just get the word out. Get the word out. Word, um, I said to um, Rabbi Friedman, there's, I love the topic that she focuses all of her work in, and it really is about, um, you know, life after midlife. And, <laughs> she, you know, we talk about that because I, I told her that I tell my children all the time, don't think of mom as getting old. Think of it, this is the beginning of the second half. It really is, and and so I much. Think we're, Sue, I think we're there, unless we're going to be 105 or 106. <laughs> you, know, you never I, know. I'm already there. Well, I know. Well, you know what? I could be 110, and then I wouldn't be. I don't. I still have time to get to the halfway point. So. Well, the biblical ideal know. lifespan is 120. That's how old Moses was. So there you, you might go. Yet have time before the, you reach the other side of midlife. Well, you know, we're certainly living um, more healthy, you know, with the work that you're doing, um, Beth, and also, Rabbi, uh, you know, trying to really kind of support people and, and get them to take better care of themselves, both spiritually, mentally, and with all the holistic um, education that you do. From a health standpoint, people are living longer. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we need, we need to we're be prepared. To. Oh, yeah. That's why I have to work longer because you have to have enough money to live longer. That's right. Absolutely. You know, re- retirement for it, – it's kind of the extremes. Either, you know, people die very young of, of bad diseases or, they're, you know, my parents, they're going to celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary next weekend. Oh, congratulations. Um, uh, 65 years. My mom's 90. <laughs> my dad's 86. And uh, it's it's just – it's amazing to think that, you know, you can be together for 65 years. Wow. Yeah, that's a long time. And as I always say, they should get a trophy. Anyone who goes past, I don't know, 20 years, 10 years today should get some kind of reward. Yeah, a lot of people say that they're married for 25 years, but it's been to three different people. So I don't think that that's right. counting. That doesn't count. Um, I, I wanted to give um, Rabbi Friedman some time to talk about, you know, her younger years because it's fascinating, Beth. She she knew as a young girl that she wanted to be a rabbi. And one of the questions I had for her was the fact that, Back when you were considering this, 
had you known that uh, women could not be rabbis, young girls could not be rabbis, would you have still pursued it? Because you mentioned that you had no idea. I was utterly shocked when I was a teenager in high school to learn that the first woman, Sally Prizant, had been ordained as a rabbi in 1972 in this country. And I was just so surprised. What do you mean? No one had told me all the times that I had mentioned in my growing up that I wanted to be a rabbi. No one had said, you know, girls can't do that. And I don't know if it was because they didn't want to discourage me or because they didn't take me seriously. I'm really not sure, but I'm very glad because it gave me the opportunity opportunity to sort of nurture those hopes and dreams without being discouraged. Yeah. And I didn't have to have the world say no to me. Well, at, knowing yourself back then, do you think would you have pursued it if people had said to you, you know, you, you really aren't allowed to be a rabbi? What do well, you think I might have said, well, I'm going to turn that around. You, you know? would have. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's got to be the first. But I, I wasn't the first. Yeah. Um, something that I'm sure was very influential in your, in your life was the time you spent in Israel. And um, you did that as a senior in high school? Half and again year? in college. And again in college. Tell me about that trip and, and what um, stands out for you as one of the things that you most brought home with you from that. I spent six months in Israel. I lived in Haifa with an Israeli family and went to an Israeli high school, which was pretty interesting for somebody who didn't really know Hebrew when I started out. Wow. Um, so first, just the opportunity to live in another language was an incredible gift and to live in that language, which is a piece of continuity. You know, when you're speaking modern Hebrew, it's not exactly the same as the Hebrew of the Bible, but it's connected Mm -hmm. through the structure of the language and the structure of the words. So I happened to be in Israel going about my business, trying to figure out how in the world to make myself able to understand what was going on in this high school in a second language when the Yom Kippur War broke out. And I found myself in a country at war, Mm. which I had never, of course, experienced anything remotely like that. And it must have been scary. It was scary. For a young girl. And, um, you know, I found myself in bomb shelters and hearing fighter jets go overhead and everybody who was male in the neighborhood went off to be in the Army or the Reserves, including the dad of the family that I was living with. Mm. Um... And what I saw at the time was a country that drew together so entirely in solidarity at that moment. And immediately people were pounding the pavements looking for volunteer jobs. Our school stopped. So I had several volunteer jobs, including delivering letters from soldiers and working in a um, daycare center. Um, So I felt sort of instantly part of this land in a way that was beyond the fact that it's the historical land of my people and... Um, a spiritual center, but also that I had been enveloped as family. Right. Did, did your parents want you to come home at that point? Well, interesting that you should mention that because I thought that they were just allowing me to stay there. And I recently had a conversation with my mother, who is, um, as I said, an incredible person. And I, I said, Mom, you know, how come you guys didn't ask me to come home? At the time, my daughter was in Israel, and there was a battle going on, uh, a conflict in, in Gaza. And I was very worried about my daughter. I said, Mom, how come you didn't, you know, ask me to come home? And she said, 
What do you mean? We did. You refused. <laughs> so interesting how members of family sometimes reconstruct and remember things differently. <laughs> but in fact, there was no way I was leaving. And, um, you know, I kind of resolved in myself that I would want to be in Israel if it were ever endangered or embattled, as unfortunately it is even in these days. And I'm even going in, in two days. weeks from today to Israel as it Are happens. You, oh, gosh. Yeah, even today, driving here, you know, I, I, there's something in the news, you know, about what's going on. It's... It, you know, that that's a whole other show, but it's interesting that, you know, your life began almost there um, and during those troubled times, and here we are all these years later, and yeah. there's still, you know, conflict. I wish we could say that we are beyond it, but yeah. certainly my connection to Israel and to the Hebrew language were forged in that very intense moment of my youth. Yeah. And so when you came back, um, what did you do when you... Got back from Israel. Oh, I finished up high school because I was in right. the middle of high school. Right. And then I went to Brandeis University, and I studied Jewish studies, Near mm-hmm. Eastern and Judaic studies, because I thought that would be useful in becoming a rabbi. Um, and I got recruited on very early days of my college career to go volunteer to help lead Shabbat services in what they used to call an old-age home. Okay. Your first, I guess... You know, introduction or exposure to elderly, where to I working think, with elders. Yes, I had, of yes. course, a grandma who yes. was incredibly dear to me and important to me. And almost everybody I've ever met who works with elders had some Grammy or grandpa back there who made a difference in their lives. Yeah. But yes, that was my first opportunity to be in a group setting with elders, and I really was not that enthusiastic about going, and I totally fell in love. You did. What was it about, you know, older people you think that that you connected to? Everybody had a story Mm. and so readily and willingly shared it. And they had such a profound connection to the experience of sharing Shabbat and worship together. And there was something about old people and young people being together and being knit together by something that we shared in common that was so profound. It was such a sweet, sweet community. You know, I think I find that really interesting because I think some people are uncomfortable around older people. And what I find is if you can look beyond, you know, the physical self and maybe the, the fragileness of older people and get them to share their story, it is always so fascinating. And once you do that, then you kind of forget that you're sitting with someone, you know, perhaps in, in the later part of life. I think that's true. A wonderful woman who taught me a lot about working in intergenerational settings said we have to see beyond the wrinkles and the tears. Mm -hmm. And then what we see is something magical about, you know, how much life there is, even sometimes when the body's not strong and even sometimes when cognition is not perfect. Right. Um, And that was also really affirming to me as a young person that I could make such a profound connection and make a difference and it was so refreshing to be with people who were not within three years of my age, right. who had a wider world of concern than classes and grades and mm-hmm. exams and whatever. Yeah. And and again, you're, I think it's so wonderful. The message that you're teaching is really about um, showing the the positive in aging. You know, I think we often only think about the negatives because, you know, it is difficult from a physical standpoint. And unfortunately, sometimes people, you know, I know you work with, with dementia, people with dementia and try to help others, you know, um, 
be able to communicate with them in the right way. So, But there are all these wonderful positive aspects of aging that we don't pay enough attention to. Um, I wrote a statement that you had said that um, I wanted you to kind of talk about a little bit. You said, I, I came to see the rabbinate, rabbinate, am I? Rabbinate. Yep, rabbinate as a kind of umbrella that could encompass many different impulses and interests. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I think it's so hard when you're a young person and you have lots of different interests. How do, you, how in the world are you going to decide which one of them to follow? So, for example, I was a high school debater, the daughter of a politician. I was very interested in advocacy and policy and politics. So I could have been an attorney or a social activist. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in human connection and counseling and helping people in their hour of need. I could have become a therapist. I was very interested in the life of the mind and teaching and learning. I could have become an academic or a scholar. And I love the stuff of religious life. I love leading services and participating in services. I love the texts of the tradition. I love the rituals. So to me, being a rabbi meant not choosing among those pieces, but being able to encompass all of them in whatever it was that I was going to do. And, you, and and one of the things I meant to ask you is, as a rabbi, are you in temple every week, or do you spend most of your time with your organization, I guess? I am in people. synagogue every week, but I, as a, a layperson, okay. I'm, I am not a congregational rabbi. Okay. And so I often take parts in the service and lead and teach and things like that, but it's just as another community volunteer. Okay. Um, We have to talk about your book, um, Jewish Wisdom for Growing Older. Um, I think we lack a little bit of wisdom in today's world in general. And um, I I think that it's really something, um, it's it's ironic that I'm sure you heard about Oprah Winfrey's new uh, film series, Belief. Yes. Uh, It launched last night. And uh, I I didn't see it, but I'm sure it's fascinating. And really the study of all the different religions, my guess is always shows um, a a theme, something that is similar in all of the religions. But yet it brings so much conflict to the world. Um, Talk about, you know, what kind of messages you want to get across in your book and how you see that. So I'm really glad you said what you said, Sue, about Um, the lack of visions for and wisdom for the journey of growing older. We live in a society that, despite wanting to defeat death, really abhors aging, and and we're we're really scared of it. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of not just ageism in terms of discrimination, which there certainly is, but there's also a kind of self-loathing when we see signs of aging in ourselves or our dear ones, we're upset, we're shocked, we're angry, and we're scared. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how to encompass all of the challenges that are inevitable in later life and the opportunities. As you said, the idea of the second half of life, that there's some hill to yet climb, that there is a process of becoming. So what I think is that probably many traditions, but the tradition from which I come, Judaism, offers a vision that holds both parts. It holds the challenges and it holds the opportunities. It affirms that aging is a time for becoming wise, Mm -hmm. for growing, for deepening, 
And I think it gives us tools to be able to be resilient in the face of the challenges. Yeah, yeah I want to get um, – Beth, are you still there? Oh. Hi. Okay, good. I've just been listening because I'm, I'm, loving, I'm loving the wisdom of the ages because when I was a little kid, I loved hanging out with older people just to talk to them because they were such a wealth of knowledge and you don't, you know, you can get a lot out of books, but when you get the stories firsthand, it's those stories that change, you know, how you see the world. So I, I love how this has all unfolded for her. Yeah, I, you know, Beth, I wanted you to share a little bit about, I know that um, the topic we were just discussing about, you know, death and, and the fear of death. As a surgeon, um, Beth, uh, you know, unfortunately sees that often in the work that she does, but she has this wonderful, positive perspective about it. So I, it's, it's a, um, I mean, I, I just gave a talk last week in Pittsburgh, which was awesome. It's a, I, I call the talk How Survivors Become Thrivers. And I talk about when someone comes in my office and they're first diagnosed with cancer and they ask the question, am I going to die? And I say, yeah, we're all going to die. I said, if you figure out a way to escape that, please let me know. Um, I'd be happy to take any notes. And I actually have a crystal ball. I have a beautiful quartz crystal ball that sits in the middle of my um, my desk. And I tell them, you know, if we could look into that crystal ball and know exactly how many moments and how many breaths we have left on this planet, you would plan those breaths very, very carefully. And I explain to them that not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. It doesn't matter whether you have cancer or not, um, that every single day we are given the gift of that day and that as we move forward in life, the one gift that cancer or a life-altering um adversity can give is it can give someone the opportunity to not be stuck in the muck and to look at every single day as a blank page that they get to write what happens that day. And it's one of the things that I think once someone gets to be a certain age, they have that wisdom because they know that they have had that gift. They know that they have had that gift of long life. And, you know, it's there's nothing that warms my heart more than going to um, a celebration of life after someone passes or going to a friend's house when they're sitting shiva. And talking to the family, knowing that the loved one that we're celebrating lived a full, happy, blissful, complete life. Because that's what it's all about. You know, it's not it's not all this stuff on the way that we tend to get distracted with. It's it's, you know, what really, you know, matters in life. And a lot of people finally figure it out when they get some major adversity or they get a diagnosis of cancer. And it's a shame that we as a society don't get it quicker and and younger and sooner because every day we're given that gift. It's true. And as you said, we're all on that same path, right? None of us are not going to do that at the end of life. There was was another line in your book here, and I guess it's a quote from you, um, Rabbi Friedman, that I just loved. Um, You said, my sense is that the whole journey beyond midlife is a mysterious blend of light and dark, wholeness and fragility. Um, That's kind of a beautiful, again, another beautiful reminder and something that, that reminds us that there are things to come. I'm going to say after 50, because that seems to be the magic number. Talk about that for a little bit. I want to honor really my 
most profound teachers about this who were the very old, very, very frail elders that I served as a chaplain when I began my career. I had a congregation, so-called, of 1,100 Jewish elders who lived in independent living and nursing home setting at the former Philadelphia Geriatric Center. Okay. And that community of 1,100 people, mostly 85 and above, and I think the eldest I ever knew was about 106, were people who were very, very frail in their bodies, and many of them very, very frail in their minds. And yet I learned about the power that they had to find meaning and make meaning and to keep learning and growing and to be resilient and to keep opening their hearts to love even in the face of loss everywhere around them. I used to say that death was the neighbor next door. You know, what does it take to make a new friend when you know that person could not be there the next day? Mm -hmm. So I learned that, yes, they lived lives that were punctuated by loss and uh, characterized by enormous physical challenge, and yet there was so much more that just was unseen by the wider world. There was such a rich life of the heart and soul that was in that community. Right. So I spent the first part of my career really wanting to sort of tell their stories, my congregants, these elders, tell people, you know, so how many people have said to you, oh, my God, if I had to go to a nursing home, just shoot me first. I've heard that so many times. Mm-hmm. And I saw that nobody would, you know, wish for the circumstances that left you in a wheelchair because you'd broken a hip or that, you know, gave you a stroke and affected your speech or that gave you dementia and meant that you had no short-term memory. But there was life and joy and wisdom and love in that existence. So I already knew in the early part of my career about that, that... In amidst frailty and loss and mortality was also joy and growth and wisdom and love. What I think I've spent the second half of my career so far learning is that in the earlier part of aging beyond midlife, you know, we know that there's a lot of potential that you can have health and vibrancy and the capacity to reinvent yourself and have a third chapter or an encore career, whatever we want to call it. But What I've been learning, and it comes from my personal life as much as anything, is that there's no escape from vulnerability and loss and suffering. And we can't sort of pick off this kind of, quote, good, vibrant part of aging and say, well, this is the time of possibility and that's the time of frailty. No, it's really a blend. Mm. You know, the whole journey beyond midlife, we have to contend with loss and limits and mortality and suffering, and we have the capacity to make and find meaning, to make and find love, to become more who we are, or maybe who we were really meant to be. And also share it then with the younger folks. Absolutely. Right? That's, you know, perhaps the, the the job or the purpose for us when we are in the later part of life is to share that wisdom with younger people. Because yes, and of course we knew that. You know, yeah. earlier in human culture and certainly in Jewish tradition, we knew that the elders were meant to be the teachers, the providers of wisdom and of mm-hmm. continuity and of vision. And sadly, in our society, we've sort of lost that idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I watched a, 
an interview that you did, a video that you did with Rabbi Zalman, who I didn't know and, and, and still don't know. Um, and it was a wonderful Q&A that you had with him. And I found myself, as he was speaking, leaning in. You know, there's something about um, the voice of older people often that really just kind of sucks you in. And he said... Um, he said something that I just had never really thought about before, and he said, um, when, you're, when you're dying, you really should kind of prepare to live through the dying. Yes, yeah, so I want to talk about Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi of Good. Blessed Memory, who died last year at the age of 89, almost Aww. 90. And he um, was a really phenomenal teacher who created a whole movement in Judaism, but he also created a movement called spiritual eldering, and he really was trying to reclaim the cultural notion of the elder and teach people to do the inner work that they need to do, that we all need to do in order to be that elder who can be a visionary for um, wisdom and transmission of culture and giving love across generations. So Rib Zalman was really, really committed to facing death very, very mindfully. And he um, told me that every night he would say the bedtime Shema, which is the most important prayer in Judaism, and it's said every night. And the words are, Hero Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal is one. And he said he would say the words in Hebrew and practice his breathing so that he would say the word one, Echad, on an out-breath because you're also traditionally supposed to say those words when you die. And he was hoping that on his very last out-breath, he would be able to say, God is one. Wow. Yeah. And I wasn't there, but I do know that he died really peacefully in his sleep. And I believe that the last words that he said consciously were, Adonai Echad, God is one. Mm. What a beautiful model for all of us to embrace the fact that we're going to die and not to shrink from it, but to really embrace it and face it with courage and dignity. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. Um, we, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the program that you started, Adopt a Grandparent. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. I'm in studio today with Rabbi Dale Friedman, and we're talking about all kinds of good, real-life stuff. Um, and and we're, I'm going back a little bit, but in college you developed a, a project called Adopt a Grandparent, and I love that because, you know, again, I think the, the earlier we can introduce our children to um, connecting with and, and communicating with older people, the more comfortable they'll become with it. Um, but talk a little bit about that project and, and what made you decide to do that. So inspired by that experience of volunteering with college students working with elders, I saw that there was something really powerful, and of course I knew that from my own very, very beloved Grammy Ann, who was just a, a light in my life. 
And what I learned was there were a lot of elders in the Jewish community in Boston who were living alone and who were really quite isolated. So I recruited fellow college students to become adopted grandchildren for those elders, and we would go out and visit them once a week and build a relationship. And I visited a woman named Rose, whom I'll never forget. I think she was really surprised that this person came sort of out of nowhere, but we visited together once a week and um, really made a lovely connection, and I learned a lot from her. Is, is there something in particular you can mention? I I'm, I'm wanted to ask you about some aha moments that you've had, you know, spending all this time with older people. And it, is there something that you, that you learned that perhaps you hadn't thought about before? I think um, with Rose, it was just the kind of crustiness that allowed her to keep going, even though her body wasn't working so well and she didn't get out anymore. But she just had a kind of fierceness to her. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what it takes to be resilient. Yeah, You know, it's so funny. I have to mention, I, I was at a wedding on Saturday night with my husband, and I sat next to a woman who was 97. And she was there because her great-granddaughter was getting married. And I turned to her, and, you know, I was anxious to talk to her. I thought, this, she's 97. She has a lot of good stories to tell. She's been around for a while. And she was, you know, she was sad because she was watching everyone dancing. Mm. And she said to me, you know, I would get up and dance. I love to dance. She said, but I just started getting wobbly. And I said, well, if you know, at 97, you, you're just starting to get wobbly. I said, that's a great life, you know, and I could see her light up a little bit. But there is that sense of loss, I think, that, you know, people face when they get older. And what kind of advice do you have for that? Well, so in fact, I think that's part of the spiritual resiliency that I would like to help people build. When we're older... And we suffer a loss of capacity, you know, something that we really love to do. I mean, if you're a reader and you love to sit with a book and you have macular degeneration and you can't physically read anymore, mm -hmm. it's very easy to become bitter. Um, so I think the trick is how do you genuinely grieve that loss but then seek to open to whatever it is that might be available? So... You know, in the case I just gave, it might be easy. You might be able to listen to an audio book. In another case, it might not be so easy. But I think it's about keeping our hearts soft enough to grieve our losses and remain open to connection wherever it's going to be found. Yeah. What What are some of the things, you know, fear is a, is a big component of, of aging. What are some of the things that, that you're afraid of? That's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I like to say when I was teaching rabbinical students or when I teach clergy or chaplains is when I'm frail or when I have dementia. Because I think if I live long enough, I would like to live a really long time, the likelihood is that I will be frail and I will have dementia. So I'm not so afraid of those things, and that doesn't mean that I'll be beautiful and graceful when the time comes. I used to look at the people in the nursing home and see, which one would I be like? <laughs> am I going to be that sweet woman who has a kind word for everybody, or am I going to be that person who's just mad as hell and not going to take it? And I, right. I don't know. Um, I'm afraid of losing my dear ones. I think that's 
the worst. Yeah. E- even I also think I think a lot of people get become afraid of um, I don't want to say being a burden to others, but when when you can't care for yourself any longer, particularly if you do have your faculties. My my mom is 90 with Alzheimer's, and um, I have to say I never thought that I would ever say this, but um, her life in the nursing home, she has a very good life. She's very well loved. She's very well cared for. Um, I, my memories of nursing homes when I was younger is not what my mother is experiencing. Um, and she's very pleasant in her dementia, so I would have to say that I can see why you want to be pleasant because you don't want to be the demented lady that's spitting on people and yelling and screaming. Uh, my mom is the sweetest Alzheimer's patient I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, but I think for people who have their faculties and lose their physical capabilities, my girlfriend Chris, who had Lou Gehrig's disease, that was one of her biggest things is that she didn't want to have to be a physical burden on people. And when you know that you are, I think that would be a, a tremendous pain, um, particularly because having been independent for so long. So I really appreciate your bringing that up, um, Beth, because our, we live in a society that idolizes and idealizes independence, you know, mm-hmm. We're supposed to be able to do it all for ourselves. We're supposed to be like that cowboy who rides off into the sunset, not needing anyone or anything. But that ideal has nothing to do with reality. We're always in relationships of mutuality. We're always getting from and giving to others. The late Maggie Kuhn, who founded the Grey Panthers, said, let's stop talking about dependence versus independence. She said, I want to talk about interdependence. And she was someone who had very severe, crippling rheumatoid arthritis in her 80s, and she could no longer live alone. So she brought young people into her household to live at a very reasonable, inexpensive rent in exchange for helping her so that she could do her activism to fight for peace and justice. Um, and that, to me, is the model, to get yeah. beyond this just fear and dread of dependence and to see that when somebody is taking care of you, that you can also be good to them. Uh, if your mother That's, is as sweet as you say she is, Beth, I oh, bet you is. when people take care of her that she makes them smile, that she makes them feel good. And th- that is an, a really meaningful exchange. And the, uh, Her caregivers are so gracious and loving, and they always have something sweet to say about her. And, you know, I've been with them, you know, because I, I, you know, being the doctor that I'm, I'm always like, you know, the bed sore, making sure there's nothing going wrong, and there's so much going right. And the, and she's been, she's had Alzheimer's now for almost 10 years, so she's had some level of care, and I have to say that we are blessed, and, you know, the she's at the Lutheran Home right now in York, Pennsylvania, and they are doing such uh, they're just they're doing God's work. I mean, I I look at this and I say there's nothing less than divine what these caregivers do because, you know, these elderly patients, they need so much. They need so much care and so much attention, but the fact that they get it 
um, and that you know they 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 leave work. You know the, the caregivers leave work, and they go. You know, you know it's it's our it's our pleasure to take care of your mother. Like you don't have to say that to us. They don't have to give us anything else. You know they they can come and punch their time clock. But you know these are people that are that are they're living their purpose. They're living their passion, and we just happen to be fortunate enough that our mother is receiving that care. That's beautiful. I want to say something else from the, my current students. One of the things that I do now through my practice growing older is that I lead wisdom circles with women beyond midlife. So I have a group that I've been working with monthly for, this is its fourth year. And these women meet once a month and we talk about issues of growing older. And we explore texts and practices that can be sustaining and we tell the truth about our experience. And this particular group that has been ongoing for four years, things have happened to people. People have had surgeries. People have spouses who have had illnesses. And the members of the group said, you know what? We should be there for one another. And from now on, if anybody has a medical need or is in the hospital or has got something going on in their lives, you should tell us, and we'll try to show up for one another. And I think that the whole dependency thing has shifted because they're in a circle of caring. They're in caring community, and they understand that this is a mutual path and that one day it's going to be me who needs help, I who, you know, I need help, mm-hmm. and one day it's going to be you, and we're going to be in this together, in this interchange of interdependence. Yeah. I, I wonder if you see a difference between the way women face aging and men. I know you don't just work with women. You work with both. Have you noticed, you know, a, a different perspective? Well, I think women are better at reaching out and making connections. Right. And that women's friendships are often enduring over time. Mm-hmm. And even if a woman, many of my students have made a move, they moved into the city or they moved from another community, they're very adept at making new circles right. of caring and connection. Right. Men are more susceptible to the societal messages about you should do it on your own. Mm. Well, they've been receiving those their whole life. Yes. Yes. And um, for many men, the work setting has been the primary um, social surround as well. So for men who retire, I think they sometimes find themselves having difficulty making connections. And then they, uh, my guess is then they face loneliness because perhaps they don't have, you know, the women are always the ones that are saying, come on, let's come on and join the group. You know, let's go to that party. Let's do this. We have to kind of encourage that, um, you know, communal behavior. So if they've got, you know, if they've lost a spouse, you know, they are, they're facing such loneliness. They're really in need of communication. Yeah, I would say what's positive is, I think we're getting more messages of the possibility of reinventing yourself. Yes. You know, those of us who are working now are going to be working for so long that it's very likely that we're going to have additional chapters in our work lives. Right. Um, You know, people who might have done professional work of one sort might find post-retirement work of a completely different sort. And that can be really an opportunity to discover new parts of yourself. That's right. 
Tell me what what a typical day for you is like. I, I want to know what you know what. Oh your my work goodness! Involves. Well, first of all, you have to know that I have at home a husband and two teenage sixteen-year-olds. Okay, well I, I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> Beth has so, two sons also, so she can relate to that. So um, my life is changing because my children learn to drive. Oh boy! So it used oh. to be that first thing in the morning I had to drive them somewhere. Now first thing in the morning, you know, maybe they get a little bit of breakfast and watch a few minutes in the news, and then they're gone. And then you're worrying, right? Then the worry sits and about them driving. I actually have a lot of faith and trust. A lot of faith and trust. So um, this morning, for example, I was preparing a class and a couple of presentations that I'm doing this week. Um, I spend some time reading and studying. I spend time praying and meditating. Um, This week, just for example, I'm going to be teaching two classes having this opportunity to have this conversation and doing another two presentations, one in New York and one in Philadelphia. I do a fair amount of traveling. Oh, and then in between, I have one or more spiritual direction sessions, either in my study in Philadelphia or by Skype with people who are in other cities. I work with people around the issues of meaning and growing older, people who may be considering retirement or have retired, people who are dealing with illness in themselves or loved ones or people who are just wondering, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Well, I think one of the things that's different about this day and age is I don't know that people talk so much about retiring. They seem to be talking more about what am I going to do when I am finished with this job, perhaps. And that's, I think, a much better attitude. I like the idea of refirement. Refirement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, it really, there's so much of it is about language, right? How, how are you going to talk about this, this next chapter? And that word retirement, you know, has a connotation of now I'm just going to settle in my chair and my, you know, get my favorite book. And that's not always a healthy uh, way to go. Well, I, one of the things that I found interesting when I started to dig into Jewish traditions, teachings about aging, was that in Judaism, there's no category about what are your obligations when you get old. There's a clear commencement of obligations as a Jewish adult, which is the age of 13 bar or bat mitzvah. Right. That's when you become obligated to carry out the commandments that are ethical and ritual in nature that shape how you live your daily life. But there's no such thing as retirement. And there's no senior citizen discount. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's, there's no such thing. So what is the message? The message is when you get old, you're still compelled to live a life of meaning and purpose, to live a life that's punctuated by significant times, to live a life in community, to live a life in which you're studying and learning and growing. And if you have to adapt things because your capacities change, then you do as much as you can. But the obligation is always there. Right. And that, to me, was a radical idea. You know, you don't get off the hook. Right. For having a meaningful life. Right. And I think in our society, the idea is you should go play. You know, go golfing, go to Florida, go to some sunbelt place, and, and you're off the hook now. You know. Well, the truth is, even when you're doing that, you're meeting new people, and you're getting an opportunity to make a difference in someone's life just through conversation. Absolutely, and there's nothing wrong with playing. It's just if that's all you define this time of your life as being, I think you could feel quite empty. Yeah. 
You know, I hope you're going to be thinking about who can I give to, whom can I teach. I, I, I travel a fair amount myself, and what I find really interesting, and you may have noticed this too, when when I show up in cities wherever, um, I get uh, many times I get picked up by a car service. And it has become like my habit um, to get in the car, and I find out everything about my driver. I have had CEOs drive me. I have had, you know, um, bank presidents. You know, these are these a lot of these guys, and it's mostly men that after retirement, after their job, their job ended, they're like, you know what? I just couldn't sit around and do nothing. And they, they're they're fascinating. And I had a driver last week in, in Pittsburgh, and he was really funny because he goes, yeah, he goes, I'm a liberal, so don't say anything if if you're not a liberal. But and he was telling me about another doctor in Pittsburgh that he drives all the time, one of the um, Dr. Paul, or one of the, the doctors that actually invited me out there to talk, but it's just really neat because they're, they're finding this new purpose and it's, it's so cool because they're driving, they used to be driven around and now they're being the drivers which I just think is so it's so neat that that, that shift occurred because um, for a lot of these gentlemen, I'm sure they don't have to work, but it feels really good to get up in the morning and have a purpose yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, meeting new people, you know, every time you meet someone new, you learn something new, you know, if you're open to it. Um, one of the things, um, Rabbi, that you counsel on, and I think this is a really important topic, is forgiveness and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And gosh, you know, towards the end of life, we really should be, you know, making sure that we have done that in certain areas of our life. Talk about that for a few minutes. So I think one of the most painful things and one of the things that makes it really hard sometimes to let go at the end is when you have regrets or when you have unfinished business. Mm -hmm. So one of the real calls, I think, as we grow older is to clean up our messes, you know, to to finish unfinished business and clean up what, what we've had that's messy in our lives. And I I will never forget a guy in the nursing home. He was 88 years old, and he was blind. And he told me, I know why I'm blind. He said, I didn't go to my sister's funeral. Wow. And this poor guy was carrying not only the burden of the loss of his sight, but this idea that he was being punished. Wow. So, you know, we were able to work together about asking for forgiveness and that you can ask for forgiveness even when someone's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, and what would he say to his sister if he could? And what did he think she would say to him? And what would God say to him? And really to understand that the possibility for forgiveness and making peace is there. M- many of us have the opportunity to do it with actual living people, and that's really, really important. One I of always the gifts- tell everybody... That forgiveness you do for yourself, you not do you don't do it for anybody else, Absolutely. because forgiving forgiving someone doesn't mean that what whatever somebody else did is right or it's not judged. It's just that once you forgive, you can let it go. Well, um, there are lots of different stories and metaphors for the idea that when you don't forgive, you're really schlepping that person along. And one <laughs> right. guy, yeah, one guy, Fred, Fred Lufkin says back. you're renting them space in in your mind, right. and and yep. that's, you know, clearly you're the one who's suffering. Yeah. Um, I also think that people living as long, for example, Dr. Dupree, as your parents have, gives us a chance to grow in our relationships to them. One of the things I saw when my own father died after a long struggle with dementia was that I had a chance to be with him a lot 
and to come to understand him differently than I had ever before and to just come to a really sweet place in a relationship that had not always been the easiest in the world. And I I think that's that's a real opportunity of aging that people don't often see. That's right. Is yeah. that our we, relationships we can be healed. Yeah. We used to see our mother, my sisters and I would, my mom, my mom loved to do for people, which she was constantly doing something for somebody. Um, and she was always giving and always doing. And we all thought when we were younger, we used to call her a martyr. And now that I'm older, I'm like, she was so far from a martyr. She did things for people from her heart. She didn't do it out of obligation. She didn't do it because she thought she was going to get something in return. She just had the biggest heart in the world. And now I know, you know, I realize that we all, you know, we all need to take a page out of my mom's playbook because I think that this is, this is karma right now. Like there's no other disease like Alzheimer's where she is currently now being cared for 24 seven by other people. And she gave and gave and gave and cared for and cared for and cared for. And the, the flip side is now she's receiving because she never was on that receiving end until her diagnosis. And so there's there's some, you know, karmic justice in this, and I, I don't know, but it's like I can see her Alzheimer's from a very different um, perspective because, no, I don't like the fact that she can't remember everything, but there are moments when, when she's there and there are those glimmers, and those those are beautiful glimmers, but she's actually receiving all of this care that she gave to everybody selflessly her entire life, and she wasn't a martyr. She just was a great lady. So... And she taught you so profoundly. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's a, uh, you know, I I we're, I don't know. Most of my adult friends that are in their fifties and sixties, um, they don't have the blessing of two parents still alive, and you know, celebrating sixty-five years of of marriage. And you know, my parents eloped. They didn't have any big wedding or anything. They had seven kids in ten years. And uh, you know, my my dad's a cement contractor, and my mom helped run the business with him. Um, but what they did was they, they gave us the foundation of unconditional love. And that is one thing that I know to be true makes a difference in children's lives is when they feel that unconditional love, they have self-esteem and they have self-worth. And for anybody to be able to get that in their lifetime, you know, is truly a gift. It's a great it's a great way to end the show, Doctor Dupree. Um, we just have oh one moment gosh. left. One moment. It always goes so fast. And where did that hour go? I don't know. It was a lovely conversation. And um, Rabbi Freeman, I'd love for you to just you know leave the audience with one lingering thought. If anybody's out there, kind of stuck in the fact that they're getting older, help them to see the positive part of it. I hope that. Anyone who's growing older can continue to uncover sources of light, even if it seems quite dark around them, to find the little sparks that are there. Very nice. Very nice. So beautiful. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Thank you, Dr. Dupree. Enjoy the rest Thank of your you. day. And Dale, I hope I get to meet you in person. You I are such a beautiful so, soul. I hope so, too. It's lovely to meet you virtually. And thank you, Susan, for having me. You're welcome. Have a great week, everyone.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 